Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 43, Tofacitinib in Amyopathic Dermatomyositis-Associated Interstitial Lung Disease. So I was going to talk about JAK inhibitors, but the tweet by Benjamin Terrier, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, he's French, caught my attention. So in his tweet, he pointed out a recent New England Journal paper, the one that I'm talking about today, and asked the question of whether or not this should be first-line therapy for this disease. I spent an inordinately long amount of time thinking about this for myself and decided that it was a thought process and a discussion worth having. Now, MDA5 stands for Antimelanoma Differentiation Associated Gene 5, and it's associated with a rapidly progressive ILD. Now, not all of these patients actually have myositis. I have treated a couple of these patients so far, and they almost all turned out poorly. The ILD itself is pretty aggressive, and I haven't seen great responses to steroids alone. Now, recently, there was a group that suggested tofacitinib could possibly be a useful therapy for these patients. And so the authors of the paper I'm discussing today shared their experience over the past four or five years. So conventional treatment for MDA5, interstitial lung disease, is high-dose glucocorticoids and then something. I think we're all sort of figuring out what exactly something should be at this point. I've often used cyclophosphamide. Um, I like tacrolimus. I've seen people use rituximab partially because it's something that we just do, and other groups have also suggested the use of cyclosporin. Now, even with this, the six-month mortality is as high as 50%. It is not a disease that people do very well with. Now, JAK inhibitors are a class of drugs that people have considered for this disease state, partially because we've considered JAK inhibitors for almost everything in rheumatology at this point. There's some evidence that a JAK inhibitor could prevent the inflammatory and fibrotic effects of T-cells in this disease, And so the investigators did a single-center, open-label clinical study to address the question. A couple of points on that. For one, you always should worry about single-center studies. The problem is that single-center studies often lack external validity. That comes from a couple of different places. For one, at a single-center, you're likely to have selection effects based on the local population. For two, you're also going to have physician effects. There may be some physicians who practice differently there than practice elsewhere. And for three... It's not just the physicians, it's the support staff, the infrastructure, everything about the hospital matters. Single-center studies are difficult sometimes to extrapolate to the community at large. This was also a study that was performed in China, which has its own specific limitations. It's a different population, they have a very different group of exposures, and though medicine is universal, there are certain idiosyncrasies to a study coming from that particular area. So this trial included adults who were positive for MDA5 antibodies, had met criteria for amyopathic dermatomyositis, and had interstitial lung disease confirmed by high-res CT for less than three months. So that's interesting. These are patients who had recently been diagnosed with interstitial lung disease. Now, these patients also had to have a predicted force vital capacity of at least 50%. So these were early patients who hadn't really decompensated completely yet. It makes sense to enroll those patients if you're going to do this kind of trial, but there's also some limitations associated with that. For one, early disease tends to regress to the mean, so perhaps some of these patients just got better because they just got better. Second, they self-selected patients who weren't terribly sick, so I could imagine this population having a lot less fibrosis and a lot more inflammation. That being said, these inclusion criteria were not unreasonable. Patients were excluded if they had other connective tissue disease, cancer, concomitant infection, or LFT abnormalities, all relatively reasonable and not overly narrowing. The study ran from July of 2017 to September of 2018, 
They ultimately enrolled 18 consecutive patients. That's quite a lot of MDA5 amyopathic metamyositis ILD. That's quite a bit more than I think most American centers would see in a one-year period. Now, patients wound up receiving glucocorticoids and tofacitinib at a dose of 5 milligrams twice daily. So kind of the rheumatology dose, none of this IBD stuff. Now, they called this a trial because they did this prospectively. But I'd like to point out that there was no randomization here. This was just all of the patients during this one-year period who got the drug. So what are you going to compare it to? Well, they decided to use a historical control group. Historical control groups are one of my least favorite things in medicine. So what's a historical control group? Well, let me tell you what they did. They picked 32 patients who met the same criteria as the group that they just enrolled. These patients were also seen in their center from April of 2014 through June of 2017 and received what they called conventional treatments. Stepping back, you can see that this ameliorates a lot of the major issues with randomized controlled trials. For one, you don't have to pay for these old patients because they already went through. For two, there's no ethical concerns because you already treated them. And for three, it cuts the amount of time you'd have to run the trial by at least half. In this case, they had almost twice as many patients in the control group, so that really improves their power. Really, on all the things that we worry about randomized control trials, this is an appealing thing to do. That being said, this is problematic for a couple important reasons. For one, this is not a blinded trial. Patients who are enrolled in the current study know they're in the current study. Physicians who are enrolling patients in the current study know they're in the current study. So at best, this is an open-label study. Problems with that are manifest. For one, physicians are likely to act different, especially if they're a physician who really hates this disease and really wants to get a new therapy approved, or even one that's conflicted. You can imagine they may act a little bit different. They may shift how they look at outcome measures. They may be a little more aggressive. Maybe they call the patient every Friday night to make sure that they're feeling all right. It's impossible for us to know everything that physicians do differently when they know they're part of a trial, but we know that they do. Second, patients act differently when they're part of a trial. If you tell them we're going to give you this fancy new drug, you can imagine that they're going to act a little bit differently. Perhaps they're more optimistic and they get out of bed earlier in the morning. Perhaps they're more likely to engage in care, more likely to take their glucocorticoids because they feel like they're part of something. We see this all the time. It's called the Hawthorne effect. Knowing that you're being monitored affects how you behave. That's not as big of a problem in a randomized controlled trial because as long as there's no unblinding, both the treatment group and the non-treatment group experience it in relatively similar amounts. In this kind of trial, that is certainly a problem. Finally, it's really important to note that the two groups are divorced with respect to time. The historical control was treated from 2014 through 2017, and the treatment group from 2017 through 2018. You can imagine someone arguing that it's not that different and things haven't changed that much. That's plausible, but look, we have learned things since then. Maybe this particular center, which clearly focuses on this disease, has learned more about how to manage these patients when they're on the vent. Or maybe, and this is more important, now that we're screening for this disease more than we were then, perhaps we're just finding patients who are healthier, and in that case, we have a selection bias. Finally, perhaps we were just killing the control group. If you look at their historical control group, a lot of them got cyclosporin, MMF, cyclophosphamide, azathioprine. Granted, the mortality from these drugs is generally low, but it's important to note that the treatment group didn't get any of these drugs. So instead of it being a positive benefit from a JAK inhibitor, maybe it's just that we didn't give them all this other junk. For a number of reasons, historical controls are an incredibly problematic thing, and they're becoming very much in vogue. The advent of all these fancy oncology trials has pushed them to the forefront, and a lot of pharmacy companies are now arguing that we should use them. 
basically the argument is what I just made. It's cheaper, it's quicker, and it's not unethical. Now this isn't a new idea. Let me tell you about a prior investigation of historical controls. This was published in the American Journal of Medicine and is entitled Randomized vs. Historical Controls for Clinical Trials by the good Dr. Henry Sachs. Now what they did is they found six therapies for which 50 RCTs and 56 historical controls were reported. So six therapies and each had undergone historical or randomized controlled trials. 79% of the historical controlled trials found the therapy was better than the control. Only 20% of the randomized controlled trials agreed. That's a huge discrepancy, showing that historical controls are much more likely to find some benefit. What drove this difference? It wasn't the treatment group, it was the control group. Historical control patients generally did worse than the randomized control groups, thereby inflating the perceived benefit of the treatment group. What if you adjust for important prognostic factors, which all of these people who support these sorts of trials say we will do? Nothing. It didn't change the results. A lot of the reasons these historical controls don't apply in the same way a randomized controlled will are not things that we can necessarily measure. So when was this paper that I'm just talking about published? This was published in 1982. We have known for a long time that historical controls are not a great idea, and I'm a little bit bothered that they're coming back in vogue. Anyways, back to the paper that we're discussing now. What did they find? So they found that survival at six months after the onset of ILD was significantly higher among the patients in the prospective group that got tofacitinib. What was that survival? 100%. Can't argue with perfect. 18 out of 18 patients made it. In the historical control group, 25 of 32 patients made it six months, or only 78%. This was statistically significant. P equals 0.04, thereby just barely falling under our magical threshold. I wound up spending a long time thinking about this trial, and here's why. On the one hand, this is a positive trial. They showed a statistically significant benefit between a group that was given dofacitinib and a historical control group that was not. This is a very scary disease, and you never want to be that person, the medical nihilist who said, I don't believe in anything, and I'm certainly not going to give this therapy until it's gone through a phase three randomized controlled trial, especially in a group like this with a high rate of mortality you get kind of worried holding back a therapy that apparently has 100% effectiveness. At the same time, this is not a good trial. It is not a randomized controlled trial. It is not a blinded trial. It is essentially a glorified case control study where we had cases who got tofacitinib and controls who did not. Those groups are different, and it's not clear to me that tofacitinib drove the change in outcomes. That being said, this is an important outcome. They didn't show an improvement in FEC. They didn't show an improvement in progression-free survival. They showed a difference in overall survival. And the difference in overall survival was not subtle. It was a big difference. They did use historical controls, but the historical controls were recent. Do I think tofacitinib is ever going to look this good again? No. If we do a randomized controlled trial on tofacitinib for this disease, I would bet anything that it looks less efficacious. But I don't know that it would look like it doesn't work at all. And so, if I see a patient with MDA5, interstitial lung disease, I'm going to consider giving them tofacitinib. Tofacitinib is generally well tolerated, so I may also give them something else, such as cyclophosphamide. But this is where you're getting into scary territory. You're hitting a lot of pathways, doubling up on a lot of medications, and I would not recommend that broadly to people. 
Trials like this put physicians like us in a difficult situation where we have to make the best choice we can based on relatively limited data. That's what we signed up for. And thank you to the authors for providing us at least some therapy to think about in this challenging disease. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.